Hi, and welcome to the Writers' Forum on WRBH. I'm David Benedetto, and today I'll be speaking with New Orleans-based poet Jerrica Marshan about her debut collection, Swole. And I'm super excited to do this. I've known Jerrica for a long time, and I've seen this book in various forms of completion, and it's it's really great to see it out in the world, finally. How's it going today, Jerrica? Hi, David. Good afternoon. Uh, how you doing? I'm doing well. Uh, this is This is fun. Good. <laughs> well, to kind of start us off, uh, how does it feel to have this book in the world, finally? Strange, to be honest. This book is very much a product of my interior, internal world. So to see it finally make its way out uh, and have other people reading it and consuming it is a really strange experience for me. I haven't quite digested all of it. I haven't quite processed that whole thing. Yeah, no, I understand that. Um, to kind of jump back a little bit, you've been writing poetry for a while now at this point. Uh, tell me a little bit about the first poem that you wrote. Uh, you don't have to share it, obviously, but <laughs> but uh, how did you kind of start writing poems? Good question. I've always... I've always really liked reading as uh, as a kid growing up, and I think somewhere around the sixth grade, uh, I was feeling really isolated. I didn't have that many friends, and that's when I started writing. And I think my first poem, oh, I'm trying to remember it, um, it was something like describing a rainbow, and it was like, how would I describe the word blue? Something like that. I thought it was very deep, but I was also like 10 years old. <laughs> That's my first serious poem about like painting the sky green, something like that. No, I like it. Um, and, and now you've progressed from describing individual colors of the rainbow to working in a really interesting kind of poetic formats, including this book, Swole. Um, how would you describe your poetry to someone? I know the, the term experimental gets thrown around a lot. Uh, would, would that be included in your kind of definition? I don't like that word. I, I don't think it's... I think it's a lazy word in terms of describing poetry. I think when you're writing, it's all supposed to be experimental, right? That's, uh, that's what you approach the page with is an experiment. So I think that word is actually kind of not apt, uh, not that exciting, not that exciting of a word. In terms of my poetry, if I were to describe it to a person, I would say think of your own self and think of the way that you go about your day. Think of the sounds that you hear. Just be very aware of your space and take everything in eavesdrop on everybody take all that information into your body and then when you feel like you have digested enough of the world go to a page and then let out whatever it is you have internalized or heard throughout the day this is not to say quoting people word for word this is your reaction to the world around you Swole, the, the book, obviously is a work of uh, many voices in there, things that you've listened to, things that you've imagined, uh, many talking about or talking around in many ways, Hurricane Katrina and the floods, 
and the traumatic effects of that, among many other things, many things on top of that as well. Um, but I was interested with how you started writing this book, like what was kind of the basis for it? And then how did that change over time? Because you, you worked on it for, for a number of years. I did. I did. I was inspired to write this. Um, I moved to the Midwest for graduate school, and I had never lived above the Mason-Dixon line. I never lived in a place where it snowed. And I moved to Iowa City, Iowa, where it snowed for like six months. And in that first winter, I was feeling very, very, very homesick. And the funny thing about homesickness is when I thought about home, I couldn't think about home without thinking about Hurricane Katrina and being a, a, a kid, experiencing that whole thing. When I was trying to write, all that I could think of was that time in my life, whether or not I could remember it accurately, whether or not it was some kind of weird fever dream, whether or not it was me replaying back actual memories and actual feelings or whether it was something that I had seen on the TV or heard on the radio. And I I couldn't untangle my own self. I couldn't untangle my personal memories from basically things that I'd seen on TV and things that I'd heard on the radio. And so this started from trying to regain myself and regain some footing in my own experiences. Yeah, no, I, I get that. I was wondering if you could share uh, maybe the, the beginning page or two of, of the book uh, to kind of give listeners an idea of, of what you're talking about. Okay. The story survived upstream of me. This, the river bloated, turned outward on itself. A breakthrough wide a more natural state. Forget the walls, the artificial banks setting a thin route south into the gulf. River found its mouth lacking, made itself big to accommodate the surge. Water by volume, water by the ton for miles, fills its container, won't be kept out. Thanks so much. <laughs> a lot of portions of the book are dealing with fragments and working on incomplete things, things that are kind of uttered and kind of stuttered through. Uh, what's kind of your fascination with like incomplete fragments? Where does that come from? Uh, me. That's a really personal thing. Growing up, there was kind of this struggle to always tell a story the way that I perceive stories to be told. A beginning, a middle, and an end with a nice period at the end and a big capital letter at the beginning and this arc of a story where things would ebb and flow and up and down and it would be clean and it would be a good way to tell a story so that people could understand where you were coming from. This fascination with stuttering and breakage and mistakeism, essentially, came from me... Growing up and realizing that I didn't have to tell a story perfectly. I didn't have to tell it from beginning to end with a cute little period at the end. I could tell it with all its 
strange complexities, all its parts of it that I didn't understand. So that's actually very important to me is pressing um, the tender spots of the stories where things kind of don't make that much sense. Things can be vague and things can be a little bit messy. That's what I'm mostly interested in. Yeah, no, I, I can see that throughout. And there is a focus on voices uh, on we as well within the work. Uh, not The speaker is not all one person in this book, and it, it's moving through various people, uh, each with different personalities, and some that you could even say are ghosts. Uh, and I'm wondering, from a writing standpoint, from a structural standpoint, how do you balance all these different voices in the work? Good question. That was actually the hardest work of all. That... Balance is an art form in itself, and editing is an art form in itself. What I basically did was I aggregated and collected all of my voices, all of the voices that I was going to use. And there actually isn't a set number of voices. There actually isn't a set number of characters in the book. Uh, not very many of them have names. They don't have bodies. They just come in and out. In a play, you have your characters named, and then you have them coming in and out of the scene. This book, n n the characters aren't named. It, it feels uh, more like a, a nebula of conversation. And the balance, I feel like I had to lean heavily on some feedback from my workshop and also my instinct in order to tell a kind of story without a beginning or an end but still make it feel like it has some sort of narrative arc, you have to do, I guess, what musical composers do. You have to shift around the dynamics of whatever sounds you're trying to bring out. So you have to know where the point of tension is on the page. You have to know what to bring into focus. You have to know what to maybe fade more into the background. And it's not so much knowing, but um, organizing. How do you know what color to use when you're painting? It's kind of like that. Yeah. Do you find yourself in that process being like, oh, here's a, a gap. Uh, I need to write a, a poem that can fill in that gap. Or is it more like, I don't have that. Let's figure out a solution outside of writing another poem within that. What do you kind of go to? I go to uh, what what fragments, what pieces I think speak to each other, what pieces of text bring out the most in each other, right? Yeah. I think that um, the different fragments I have in here, they bring each other out and they have conversations that wouldn't exist if they were just alone by themselves. When you think of maybe voices as actors you can, and, and the page as a stage, you can kind of arrange them in that way, where they're having a conversation even though they're not necessarily speaking to each other directly. They address a context. They address something in memory or they address something like an event or a dream or um, just a regular description in, in ordinary language. And to place them in a context where they are put together, it brings out something I think kind of special. Yeah, no, I could see that. It's it's very much aware in, in the book itself, reading through. And it's also part of why uh, the book being conversation, every fragment being conversation with itself, the book is more of a, a 
book-like poem, per se, more than individual poems within a book, right? That's exactly what it is, David. How do, ever did you get that I idea? I have no idea. Maybe I've talked to you about it before. <laughs> but <laughs> no, I, I do think it, it's interesting to see those. And parts of it are like atonal in a lot of ways. Part of it are just like sounds jutting out, uh, pages that contain maybe only a few words. Um, and then there are parts that are more personal and more um, incredibly transparent in talking about yourself or at least the speaker in, in a way that what was going on and like brief descriptions. Um, I'm wondering like from a personal standpoint, why were you so invested in telling about your experience here? Like, I think that's really interesting to say that you devoted, you know, 80 to 90 pages about that. Yeah. And you know, the funny thing is, is that some of it is my personal experience but I wanted to bring in a lot of voices around it because this was a point in my life. I was 14 years old when Hurricane Katrina came around. I was a kid. I was in puberty. I did not know my my own feelings. And to try to dredge up memories from that time was a really difficult thing to do. You were just coming into the world. You were just, your body is changing. My body was changing. And my my landscape was changing the world I knew around me was changing and shifting and I I didn't understand what was going on and it didn't think I didn't think like anyone else knew what was going on too. So in that way, yes, uh, that was my personal landscape, which is why I have to bring in other voices because sometimes it's those other voices I can hear above my own. I can hear the radio playing. I can hear people singing songs. I can hear the news. And that's part of my internal landscape for when I think about Katrina, what happened to me, what happened to all of us. I wanted to write a book that was both personal and also maybe communal. I didn't want it to be just about me because that event wasn't just about me by any means. It was about what happened to all of us collectively who, who were here, whether or not you lost a house or you lost a family member or, you know lost a pet, something happened to us. And that kind of utterance is the backbone of this book. Something happened. How do we talk about it? Yeah. And how do you deal with the trauma associated with that? And one of the interesting things we've talked about is about this hierarchy of trauma. And while some people lost individuals, some people lost homes, some people lost everything. Some people had smaller incisions, but they are just as jarring. And I think that's something that comes out in the book here as well. I would hope it would. Why it's difficult for me to come out with a book about Katrina is because all of our experiences are so varying and different. And I didn't want to step on anyone's toes. I didn't want to presume things. I didn't want to feel like I was prioritizing my trauma over anyone else's. I wanted to kind of make a, a landscape of a book, impressions of this time and what it felt to be, to be young and confused and lost and displaced for a while. I'm sure I'm not alone in that. Yeah, and also in the poem itself, we talked about this maybe just a couple of weeks ago about the idea of presenting voices on the page in a way where they're all kind of equal, whereas outside of that, where you have no control, 
they're not on the same level uh, for, for differing reasons, but here they are all laid out and you can engage with them on an equal level. Yes, I firmly believe in our society there are certain populations that are not on equal footing with others. There are some people who are forgotten. There are lives who are forgotten because they don't have resources. They don't have people looking after them. There are people that fall through the cracks because of their background, because of maybe their families, the color, the color of their skin, what they believe in. So I believe that the page is a place where we can, where I at least, could feel like I could make humans with bodies on some sort of equal footing. So that what we see isn't a black body or a white body or a, an Asian body. We see uh, a human being kind of dealing with trauma. So that nobody is prioritized over any other. There's a kind of um, equalization, I think, that happens on the page. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. <laughs> that's, a, that's a hard thing for me to talk about, especially on, um, on a radio station. Because you don't want to get too political as to offend anyone. But there are certain stories that, that fall through the cracks just because of... Some of us have the privilege to be able to tell our stories, and some of us don't. Some of us are forgotten, which is a thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, to take a different kind of interest in the book, um, you write, give me a home I can have. So there's a focus on like a, a place of belonging, on not belonging more than anything. And I know you talked about being outside of Louisiana and thinking into that uh, and thinking about... Uh, the hurricane floods and trying to deal with that. But I'm interested what, what the word home means to you, actually. Mm, interesting. Uh, that's always something that's um, very much a preoccupation because I come from an immigrant family where we left home and kind of had to figure out a new home and to figure out a new place to belong and belong to like a new social situation, I think. And growing up, I kind of moved around a lot. So give me a home I can have, right? Um, something that that I can put roots in. I don't think I've ever really had that until coming to New Orleans. I think home is the closest thing to a context you can understand yourself being in or staying in. A place where you can understand yourself and a place where you feel most free. And you feel that in New Orleans? I do. I do. Uh, again, like I said, I, I moved to the Midwest and it was it was nice and it was pleasant and I made some great friends, but I didn't quite understand what was going on there. I can't put my finger on it. There's this way that people are that are different from here. I'm not going to say less open. I'm not going to say colder. But there's something about the way people are in this city, uh, their warmth and their openness and their, I guess, brashness is also a word that I would use. They don't mess around. They don't try to paint over things. That's the context that I understand. And that's the way of life I want to honor is 
honesty and openness and a desire for life at its most genuine and sincere, I think, is what you get here in New Orleans. What's uh, what's your relationship with the quote-unquote reader uh, while you're writing? Is, are you, is it something you think about at all? Is it something that you're avoiding? I try to avoid it completely. Yeah. I try to not think of any kind of reader at all. I always say that my ideal reader is myself because that's my relationship with writing. Some people might think it's selfish, but for me, writing is a very personal exercise. I write for me. I write to live. I write to understand the world around me. I write to understand myself. That's the goal. Everything else is peripheral. If anyone else gets it and feels it and feels some kind of connection with it, that's the cherry on top or one of the cherry on tops. Cherries on top. <laughs> Multiple cherries. <laughs> All the cherries on top of the, the Sunday of poetry. Yeah. But the goal when I write is to be able to say things and express myself in a way that feels most accurate to whatever I feel in my head that may or may not be serviceable to anybody else. But I want to try to communicate what's up there accurately. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, what's your favorite place to be in New Orleans? Mm. Or where's your favorite place to be? What's What What are where? What are where? Um, you know, I, I love the weird smells of this city. That's, that sounds kind of gross because we all know what New Orleans can smell like in the summer. <laughs> but I honestly love anywhere in New Orleans when the weather is temperate, like in the fall or the spring, and I'm standing under a tree in the shade and like the breeze is blowing past me and I hear streetcar or I hear like in the distance some brass band playing. Or the marching band that lives very nearby. (laughs) Or the marching band. Um, I love the sounds and smells of this city. I think it's just, it's a very deeply comforting and exciting feeling for me. Uh, Anywhere I can feel like I'm attached to this place is, is my favorite place. Other than that, I really love the balcony at Avenue Pub, watching the sunset there. That's one of my favorite places in the city. I, I like the sight of the river. That's, that's always nice. I like the smell of jasmine. Is that a place? I, I think, think it, it can is. be. It can <laughs> yeah. be, yeah. And yeah, that, that's what I like. <laughs> No, I can see that. Um, you brought some props with you today. Uh, our listeners can't see it uh, here, but uh, you have a big book full of writings and cutouts and pasted things. And I'm interested to hear about kind of the initial writing process for you, because I guess this is a part of it. Yes, I bring what what I call my scrapbook. So when I start the writing process, I never think that I'm writing just one poem. I like to write in a book length structure. So that gives me a lot of room to spread around, essentially, to make a mess. And this scrapbook is where I organize and reorganize my thoughts. I cut out stanzas and I glue them in other places where I think they would be better. Yeah, this book is just a a place for me to organize my thoughts before I put them in a word processor in the computer And then I'll print out the poems again and I will try to rearrange them and try to see what context they fit in the best. Like I said about editing. 
where do you write? What's your kind of ideal writing space? Does Is there any place in particular that you like or any like rituals that you have that you need to get into before you start writing? It has to be completely quiet. I can't listen to music at all. I can't have the TV in the background. It has to be me in my space because, again, it's very crowded in my head and in my thoughts, and I'm trying to listen to whatever is up there. I'm trying to um, rehash the voices that I heard and trying to put them on a page. So I can't have any music playing anywhere where I'm free from distractions, essentially. That's it. That and a big cup of coffee. How big? Really big. The size <laughs> of a of a punch bowl, essentially. Uh, obviously. <laughs> um, who are some writers you wish people were reading right now? Uh, writers that you admire? There's this writer, my press mate, called uh, Simone White, who's wonderful. Uh, who's a wonderful writer. She wrote this book called Of Being Dispersed. That's a lovely book. Whoa, one of my favorite poets in town. Uh, her name is Cassie Prine. Uh, she has two books out. One of them is a book of poems called Lena. And her other book is a short uh, kind of nonfiction book about Bayou St. John. I love this poet, uh, Douglas Kearney. He wrote... Uh, recently um, Patter and a book called The Black Automaton, which is integral to the life of my own book. He really does amazing things with the page. Yeah, I think those are three good ones. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of Douglas Kearney, uh, who came for the Poetry Festival this past year, his his kind of poetics and how he goes about writing poems is very performative in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Does that play any role in your work? It definitely does because... Um, I have to be not me in order to be some of the voices in my head. Does that make any sense? That makes me sound crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Poetry, like a lot of other art, is very performative. I come from a performance background, even though I don't think that's very obvious these days. Poetry should have the space to be bombastic and loud. It's not just cerebral and quiet the way that some people think poetry is. Poetry should be performed and read out loud and enjoyed in that way. Poetry is very physical. It's a very physical, visceral thing. It shakes the body. Is it Emily Dickinson who said, I love poems that make me feel like the scalp is being lifted off my head. I'm paraphrasing. I'm not good at quoting. But she she had said something like that. <laughs> yeah, you feel the scalp lift off your head. That's what poetry should be doing. Yeah. Speaking of more classic poets, uh, what's a piece of writing, poem, or our collection of poems, or our collected works, or poet, uh, that you continue to come back to? There's this poet, Alice Notley, whom I love. She is an American expat. And she writes these poems that feel to be on theme, like her head is spilling out on the page. Reading her always gives me permission to not pull myself back. That in the act of writing, let everything spill out. Editing is the place where you can pull things back. But when you're just trying to get stuff on the page, try not to edit yourself too much. Give yourself all the permission and all the space you need. And that's what I learned from her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, we're getting towards the end of the interview. Um, I know you've got uh, a couple events coming up. Uh, I was wondering if you could share those. 
Yeah. Oh, my. Okay, I hope I get these dates right. On July 19th, which is next week on Thursday, I will be reading at uh, the Dogfish Reading Series, which is my favorite reading series in town. It's lovely. Um, I'll be reading with the author, novelist, Nathaniel Rich. I think the doors will open at 7 o'clock, and the reading will start at 7.30. There will be two featured readings, and then a quick break, and then an open mic at the end. So if uh, anyone wants to come and bring some poems, I think the, the mic opens up. Yeah. Yeah. Well, cool. That's exciting. Um, well, to kind of finally wrap us up, I was wondering what you're reading right now and uh, if you're working on anything. On anything. Ha! I, I love this question. I hate this question. <laughs> um, actually, I'm reading um, a couple of manuscripts. A very good friend of mine is a novelist, and I'm in the middle of um, looking at her first draft for a new novel that she's working on. I won't say her name, and I won't say the name of the novel. It's all very secret for right now. But yeah, Ooh. that's what I'm deep into. <laughs> I don't. I don't also read fiction, so um, it says it says a lot when I'm when I'm reading uh, when I'm reading a novel. Yeah, it means yeah. that I'm very invested in the work. Well, that's good. I'm mm-hmm. sure that person will probably appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and uh, a book I'm reading is called "The Louisiana Urban Gardener." by Catherine K. Fontenot from LSU Press. Yes, I um, I like gardening, and I haven't really had the chance to, to grow vegetables or herbs, so I'm reading up on that before I make my stake on the gardening world. <laughs> make your mark? Yeah, um, yes, I just like reading about plants. Yeah. Um, and, and what are you working on? Or is anything kind of on the horizon for you as far as um, something outside of Swole? I desperately hope there's a horizon. The horizon <laughs> is far away. But yes, for the past uh, year, year and a half, I've been trying to edit through another book length work. It's going to be a romance. I think like a Harlequin romance, but in the way that I would write it, which is probably deeply disturbing and and kind of strange. So not at all like a Harlequin romance, but um, yep. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's there's like boats and and love and angst and all that that kind of very fun stuff. Yeah, swashbuckling. Mm. Sounds great. It is swashbuckling. Like there are mountains and pirates and boats and like, you know, that kind of like the chest... Popping out of a shirt. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) (laughs) On that note, um, Jerrica, thanks so much for coming on today. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you, Dave. This has been great. That was New Orleans-based poet Jerrica Marshan, whose debut poetry collection, Swole, is out now. And that's our show. You've been listening to the Writers' Forum on WRBH 88.3 FM here in New Orleans. You can catch our show every Thursday at 3 p.m. as well as on Sundays at 8.30 a.m. This program, as well as WRBH's other interview programs, can be found online on our SoundCloud page, which is soundcloud.com slash WRBH Reading Radio. I'm David Benedetto. Until next time.